Hello, it's Tuesday, December 6th, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. South Korea's campaign in the 2022 Qatar World Cup has come to an end with a 4-1 loss to Brazil in the round of 16. We'll discuss the match in more detail, as well as look back at Team Korea's overall campaign this year for an extended news briefing shortly. Debate over the indoor mask mandate has reunited across Korea after Daejeon City announced it would unilaterally lift the rule next month. We'll look at this issue for our in-depth today. And then coming up for Touch Basin's Hall, we'll meet the hot designer helming the craft trend fair this year. Let's begin. Korea 24. What you're hearing now, the sounds of disappointment expressed by KBS sportscasters as Brazil scored goal after goal in the first half of their 4-1 win over South Korea on Monday night. This brought an end to the Tegut Warriors' World Cup run in Qatar at the round of 16 after putting on heroic performances to get out of the group stage. The tournament favourites, Brazil, were just an underdog miracle too far. For this part of our news briefing today, we're going to go over what happened and look back at Team Korea's World Cup campaign overall. And we do that with the help of Paul Williams once again, who is a football writer and the founding editor of the Asian Game. He has been connecting with us from Qatar throughout the tournament after having watched all of Korea's games. And he joins us now once again. Paul, hello. It's good to talk to you. Uh, Good to talk to you again. I wish it was under better circumstances. Indeed. So you were at Stadium 974 in Doha to watch the South Korea-Brazil game on Monday evening, local time. It was a dazzling first-half performance from Brazil and a dispiriting result for Korea and Korean fans. So it's a little painful for us here, but can you sum up the game for us? Yeah, dazzling is, is the right word for it. Is Brazil in that first half was simply dominant. We had... Three goals inside the, the first half an hour. You had the, the opening goal from Vinicius Jr. Uh, and the penalty from Neymar inside the, the first sort of uh, 10 or 15 minutes of the game um, that really set Korea on uh, on the back foot. You had Richarlison with a fantastic goal as well just before the half an hour mark. Um, and it looked like it was going to be, uh, well, it looked like it was definitely game over at that point. You know, three goals inside the opening uh, 30 minutes. Uh, Paqueta scored another goal about five minutes later and it was 4-0 and it was looking really, really ugly uh, for Korea. They got through to halftime at, uh, and kept it at 4-0. They won the second half, even though Korea had taken the foot off the uh, foot off the gas a little bit and were coasting through. And fantastic goal from, from Paik Sung-ho um, in the second half to sort of restore a little bit of pride and consolation for Korea, but it was too little too late by that stage. It was, it was dazzling, as you said, from Brazil. They... They demonstrated why they are the favourites to win this tournament. I think regardless of who they played yesterday, they were going to, in the form that they were in, they would have beaten pretty much any team in the world yesterday. It was just unfortunate that South Korea were the opponent that was in their way. Some of the football they produced in that first half was you know, absolutely you know, spellbinding, really. The, the Richarlison goal where... 
they just sliced their way through the, the Korean defence with, with one-touch passing was just simply beautiful to watch. So it was unfortunate that Korea were on the receiving end. A, a 4-1 scoreline looks really bad for Korea, but it wasn't it wasn't their best performance, but I also don't think it was a particularly bad performance from Korea. They had their chances throughout the game. Kwangi Chan had a great chance when it was 2-0 in the first half and forced a fine save from from Alisson in, in goal. Um, we obviously saw the, the great goal in the second half from Paik Sung-ho as well. And I looked at the stats after the game and uh, the, the shots on target, South Korea had six and Brazil had nine. So it wasn't, you know, that far apart. It was just that Brazil were ruthlessly efficient. Um, uh, Son Hun min had a shot that was finally saved as well. So, you know, on another day, Korea could have potentially scored, you know, three goals themselves, but... They just came up against a side that was simply in such good form. Yeah, especially that first half. It was pretty difficult to watch, but at least the career pulled one back with that wonder goal by Pexamo. Let's listen to an assessment from one of the players. Uh, this is striker Cho Gyu-sung speaking after the game. They are really great players as we witness on and off the field. Brazil are simply number one in the world, and I can only admit that. We need better preparations to compete against these players. Paul, what do you think South Korea lacked yesterday? Uh, Why do you think South Korea failed to produce uh, some of the magic that saw them uh, make it through to the knockout round in the first place? Um, I've said throughout the tournament that I thought the defence has been a little bit shaky and it was torn apart yesterday, particularly in the the early stages. The, the two full-back positions, um, Kim Jin-soo and Kim Won-hwan, you know, they're great players going forward, but I think they've been a little bit suspect at times in this tournament defensively and, and Brazil certainly um, were ruthless in exposing exposing that again yesterday. So that's probably an area in which they need to solidify over the next couple of years. Kim Min Jae was playing injured, which didn't help. So he wasn't at his absolute best as well. So defensively, I think they were caught out yesterday. And some of what we'd seen in the earlier games where um, they'd perhaps been exposed, but not particularly punished um, at times, um, was was on full display yesterday. Attacking wise, I didn't think, as I said, I didn't think they were that bad yesterday. Huang Yi Chan started the game, and I thought he had a good game. There's always pressure on Son Hun Min. We know what he can produce. Um, so attacking wise, I didn't think they played that badly. But as I said, they just come up against a side that is just simply in spellbinding form, and they look odds on now to probably go on and win the tournament. Sure. And South Korea, I think fitness was an issue as well. They'd put their heart and soul into those earlier group games. They looked like they just Mm. didn't have enough in the tank to go another round, especially only three days uh, after their previous game. Uh, Let's also hear now from the team captain and star player, Son Hong-min. I have nothing to say but sorry to the fans for falling short of expectations. All the players and staff members did their best, and I hope the fans understand that we did our best. I would like to thank them so much for their support and for this special experience I've never had before. Our players and I will show improvements. 
Looking over the World Cup in Qatar as a whole, how do you size up South Korea's overall performance? It was only the third time they made it to the knockout stages after 2010 and the dream run on home soil in 2002, of course, where they went all the way to the semifinals. Uh, how do you think Korea did in your eyes? It's a difficult one to assess, really, um, and it depends on which metric you, you like to assess it on. So the fact that they made it through to the knockout round, as you said, first time in 12 years has to be considered a success, particularly given that they were in a difficult group. So you, you'd give Korea a tick for that, but they played four games in this World Cup so, and they only won one of those games. So on that metric, you'd perhaps suggest that it wasn't the best World Cup. They still haven't been able to... I think 2002 was the last time they've actually won more than one game at a World Cup. So on that metric, it, it wasn't perhaps the best success um, so it's hard to it's hard to measure and, and give a definitive answer now as to whether the the pain as a whole is a success or a failure. I think there are some um, um, some positive and some negative bits on on either side of mm. of that argument, and perhaps in uh, in the fullness of time we'll be able to to have a um, a greater understanding of that. But I think what it's done at least is um, as it has done for the, this tournament done for a lot of other Asian teams, it's kind of set a base of expectation now that Korea, Japan, Australia now need to, to build on. Um, and looking ahead to, to 2026, looking ahead to the next Asian Cup here in 12 months' time, there's a base that they need to uh, to build on now and that's up to uh, to the next coach to um, to come in and do that. Sure, looking at the squad as well, what which uh, Korean players stood out for you uh, in this World Cup? I think different players performed well in different matches. In the opening game against Uruguay, I thought Chung Wee Yong in the middle of the pitch was sensational in that game. In the game against Ghana, then Lee Kang-ing off the bench um, was was spectacular. Um, and he's a player that I'd like to see get more game time in the future under a new coach and perhaps build the team around someone like Lee Kang-ing because we know Son Hong Min's now on the wrong side of 30, so... Whether he sticks around to go through until the next World Cup, is there's no guarantee that he'll do that. So I think a player, the, the team needs to be built around a player like uh, like Yi Kang in as well. So mm. and, and I really like Huang Hee Chan in the last uh, last two games when he uh, came off the bench against Portugal. And again yesterday, I think he, he demonstrated why he's so important to this Korean side. Yes, I think he lived up to his uh, nickname, the Bull. And finally, uh, head coach Paulo Bento has announced that the Brazil game was his last with the Korean national team. Uh, As we mentioned, he's only the third coach to have led South Korea in the knockout stages. He's had mixed reviews from fans over the years with his seemingly stubborn player picks and his attempts to uh, play uh, for Korea to play uh, build-up football. How do you rate what he's done for the national team and where do you think the national team goes from here? Very good question. Um, uh, it's like you said, there, there had been a lot of criticism of Paolo Bento over the last couple of years. The results the results weren't always matched by um, really fluid performances, particularly in, in qualifying where Korea often laboured to wins against you know lesser opposition that they would be expecting to, to dominate. But then he comes to the World Cup and he does get them through to the knockout round. So that will, um, you know, that the whole recency bias might sort of cloud our judgment of Paolo Bento and um, and he may be viewed as a success. I think he did what he needed to do with Korea, but I don't think he particularly developed them 
much beyond what he needed to do, as, as is often the case when you get a foreign manager in. So where they go from here, it has been said that they may look for a uh, for a Korean manager. So, um, you know, Kim Do-hun has, has been mentioned. I've seen Park Hang-so mentioned as well, coming from, from Vietnam. I don't know if I particularly like the option of Park. We know that, uh, that his Vietnamese side was very defensive. I'm not sure that's the, the avenue that Korea needs to go down with the talent they've got at their disposal. Um, so it's a really important decision now for the, uh, the Korean Football Association. They've got to probably give themselves enough time to evaluate where they think the, the tournament um, went right with mm. success and where it went wrong, identify where they think this team needs to go and then identify the coach to take them in that direction and whether that's a Korean coach or a foreign coach, that'll be interesting to see. Well, it was a disappointing last match, but the Korean team had already won the hearts and minds of the Korean public with their gutsy performances in the group stage. And I'm sure they'll be receiving a hero's welcome when they return. We'll wrap it up there for our first part of our news briefing. Paul, thank you for today and for all the occasions you've connected with us from Qatar over the past couple of weeks. And we'll hopefully speak to you again soon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Moving on now to the second part of our news briefing. And to bring us the headlines today, we have joining us in the studio once again, veteran journalist Chris Price. Chris, hello. Uh, Good evening. Good to be back. Yes, we start with North Korea, because for the second day in a row, uh, the regime fired artillery shells into the maritime buffer zone on Tuesday in a continuous barrage that began in the morning and lasted until the late afternoon. Uh, They are believed to have fired around 90 artillery rounds into the maritime buffer zone in the East Sea. This was again in violation of a 2018 military agreement, as was a barrage fired the previous day. And once more, the North responded that it was reacting to what it described as provocations from the South and the United States. So, Chris, can you tell us more? Yeah, well, the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, announced on Tuesday that the North began firing the rounds uh, from Kosan County in Kangman Province around 10 a.m. in the morning, but this time they continued on firing into the afternoon. The Joint Chiefs said the projectiles landed in the East Sea buffer zone, north of the de facto maritime inter-Korean border, the Northern Limit Line, and, as you mentioned, amounting to a second violation of the September 19, 2018 military agreement. On Monday, the North fired some 130 artillery shells into both the eastern and western maritime buffer zones. The barrages, again, were an apparent protest against the ongoing live fire drills being conducted by South Korea and the U.S., A spokesman for the general staff of the North Korean People's Army said that the firing of multiple rocket launchers and howitzers by the enemy was again observed in the border area from 9.15am. The spokesperson said an emergency order was issued commanding frontline troops to fire artillery in response. Although the spokesman called for an immediate stop to what it called provocative military action by South Korea and the US, the Allies exercises routine training that does not violate the inter-Korean accord, something so emphasised as the alliance continued with their scheduled exercise on Tuesday in Chowon, Gangwon province. According to the South Korean military, the Allies were conducting drills involving the launch systems that morning. The action comes a day after Pyongyang launched rounds from Kungang County in Kangwon province towards the buffer zone in the East Sea and similarly from around Changsan Cape in South Hangwei province toward the West Sea. Meanwhile, the United States has repeated its calls for China to exert its influence 
on North Korea to persuade the regime not to conduct a nuclear test or other acts of hostility. Yeah, John Kirby, the White House National Security Council coordinator for strategic communications, quite a title, made this call on Monday in a virtual press briefing when he was asked if there are any signs that China was going to use its position to rein in Pyongyang following the recent summit between the leaders of the US and China. Kirby said that in talks with Chinese President Xi Jinping, President Joe Biden made it very clear that Beijing could exert influence on the North. He added that the US would like to see China use this authority appropriately, not only as a neighbour and bilateral trade partner of North Korea, but also as a member of the UN Security Council. But he also said that not only is Beijing refraining from leaning on Pyongyang to the desired effect, it is in fact doing quite the opposite noting that the North launched more missiles last month, and there's more work to be done. He said Washington would like Beijing to participate in efforts to convince Pyongyang to cease its hostile actions. OK, let's move on to other headlines now, and the latest on the special police investigation into the deadly Itaewon crowd crush. A court has refused a request for an arrest warrant for former Yongshan police chief Yi Imje on charges of professional negligence resulting in death regarding the case. Can you tell us more? Yes, the Seoul Western District Court turned down the call by special police unit that was formed to look into the incident late on Monday night, citing a lack of grounds to arrest him. The court said the possibility of Lee destroying evidence and fleeing the country was low, adding his defence rights needed to be guaranteed. Lee was dismissed from his position amid the suspected bungled response to the fatal crowd surge on the night of October 29 that resulted in 158 deaths. The court cited the same reason in refusing to arrest the former head of the Yongsan 112 Situation Room, Song Byung-ju, who was accused of failing to swiftly and appropriately deal with emergency calls on the night. And finally, the mayor of Daejeon has insisted that the wearing of masks indoors should be up to each person following an early announcement that the mask mandate to prevent the spread of COVID will be lifted as early as January in the city. So update us on this. Yeah, Mayor, Mayor Lee Cheng-Wu, during a staff meeting held on Monday, said the level of public awareness regarding the COVID-19 pandemic justified entrusting individual citizens to make appropriate decisions on quarantine measures, including indoor mask wearing. However, he did add that the central and local governments should closely cooperate to produce positive results that benefit the public as a whole. Lee said that while government-level talks on lifting the indoor mask mandate appeared to have begun, quarantine guidelines concerning the elderly, senior citizen care facilities and social welfare centres should be further fine-tuned. Daejeon recently notified the Central Disaster and Safety Countermeasure Headquarters of its plan to issue an administrative order ending the indoor mandate if the central government failed to do so by December 15. And although the health authorities responded negatively to the city's position in favour of a uniform nationwide policy, discussions on such a policy change may be moved up as the expected winter wave of the coronavirus is apparently faltering. Yes, we'll be talking more about this controversial call by Tejon City in our in-depth news analysis segment next. But first, we wrap up our news briefing there. Thank you for those updates. My pleasure.
In South Korea, a debate over the indoor mask man- mandate has reunited across the country. This comes after Daejeon City notified the central government that the city will take autonomous steps to lift the mask requirement for indoor locations next month if the central government fails to do so themselves by mid-December. South Chungcheong province followed suit and vowed to end the mandate on its own as well if it isn't removed nationwide. However, Chung Gi-suk, the nation's chief advisor on infectious diseases, says now is not the right time, warning that the premature removal of the mandate could be fatal for high-risk groups. To delve into this controversy surrounding the indoor mask rule, we're joined online now by Dr. Alice Tan, an internist at Mismedi Women's Hospital here in Seoul. Dr. Tan, hello. It's good to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Let us first get your assessment on the overall COVID-19 situation in South Korea. Currently, on Tuesday, uh, new COVID-19 cases jumped above 70,000 to hit the highest daily caseload in uh, 83 days. We are in a so-called seventh wave of the pandemic. Uh, What do you make of the current situation? How does it compare uh, to the past waves as well? Right. The most recent weekly assessment estimated the effective reproductive number to be 1.01, which uh, was a small improvement compared to the previous week, but still uh, is technically above one. So transmission may be still uh, on the increase. It's becoming increasingly difficult, however, to gauge where we are these days, however, because there are many moving parts and the daily case counts are not as reliable now as they were previously. Furthermore, there's very little in the way of tracking and contact tracing. So for all we know, there could be dozens of active large-scale clusters at churches, gyms, or food and beverage establishments that are propagating chains of transmission, but all under the radar. The case positivity rate is about 44% for the last week. And on December 4th, it was a whopping 83%. Ideally, the case positivity should be under 10%. So this metric alone gives us an indication of just how limited the testing has become. And, of course, that limits our knowledge of what's actually going on. We know that an infected person is most infectious during the first Uh, to uh, most infections during one to two days prior to the onset of symptoms. And we know that the majority of infections are caused by infected people with no symptoms at all. So without surveillance testing or identification of close contacts, the reported daily case count is probably missing thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of asymptomatic infectious COVID cases in our country. I think we may be nearing a tipping point when the virus starts to infect large numbers of vulnerable people along the chains of transmission. And then we may see ICU cases uh, rise dramatically. And I'm particularly concerned because uh, many people who are at the highest risk of developing severe disease and dying of COVID are not up to date on their COVID vaccinations. Bivalent booster uptake rate is only 22% in people age 60 and above. 30.1% in people in high-risk residential facilities such as nursing homes and convalescent hospitals, and about 20% of people with immunocompromised are up-to-date on their vaccinations. 
last but not least, almost 5.5 million people who are eligible for vaccination still have not received even one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. And to put this in perspective, this is the population of an entire Scandinavian country. Mm. That's the number of people that have not even received one dose in South Korea. So um, I'm very concerned. Um, But as worrisome as the numbers are, the situation may not be as dire as feared since the number of people being admitted to hospital and dying of COVID, um, which are sort of harder, more reliable data points, these numbers have remained largely unchanged week on week. So it's very, very difficult to read the tea leaves to figure out exactly where we are. Uh, But I am concerned that we may be missing a lot of positive cases right now. Right, that's further backed up by what uh, Chung Gi-sak, the chief advisor on, Nash, on infectious diseases, said on Monday as well. He said that he doesn't think uh, the cases have hit a plateau as there are many cases that go unreported. Uh, so amid this situation, last week, Daejeon City notified the central government that the city will lift indoor mask mandates in January if the central government fails to do so by mid-December. It's the first time that a municipality has voiced opposition in this way to the government's uh, mask mandate. Uh, The city reportedly cited three reasons for the request. First, most people are already not wearing masks indoors in locations such as restaurants and cafes. Second, it has a negative effect on children's language, emotional and social development. And third, more countries are lifting indoor mask rules uh, around the world. So South Chungcheong province also made a similar announcement saying that uh, it will push for voluntary mask wearing if the indoor mask rules are not lifted nationwide. So, Dr. Tan, what do you make of the moves by Tejan and South Chungcheong province? Well, I mean, so the one question that's raised is, you know, how effective is masking in terms of uh, limiting transmission? And actually, this was a very controversial Uh, topic uh, of research. In May of this year, however, there was an extremely large study conducted by Princeton University that examined the relationship between mask wearing and SARS-CoV-2 transmission. And what the authors concluded was that mask wearing is associated with a notable reduction in transmission, quantified as a mean of a 19% reduction. The difference between um, 0% and 100% mask wearing corresponded to a 25% reduction in transmission. Um, And this was a huge study. They examined the mask wearing behavior of 20 million people in 55 countries on six continents. And it was published in, in the highly respected proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. In a healthcare setting, we know that proper wearing of a N95 or a KF94 mask can reduce the transmission of SARS-CoV-2 by half. And then there's another study conducted by scientists at the Mayo Clinic that showed that when both the source, so the infected person, and the target, the non-infected person, wear a mask, the particle count, so viral particle count, can be reduced by more than 99.5% of baseline. Um, And so the evidence that supports um, the use of mask wearing to control transmission of SARS-CoV-2 is very compelling. And if you look at the curves, it's very clear that the higher the transmission, the higher the number of deaths. I mean, there's a one-on-one correlation Mm. still. 
so um, we do need to take you know this data into account when we are um, coming up with public policies. Still, as you said, uh, other countries, uh, many other countries have lifted uh, most of their mask mandates. I understand you have been to other countries in recent months as well, so you might have seen the situation there firsthand. Uh, but uh, there, uh, the situation doesn't seem like it's spiraling out of control. Uh, what's the situation like in other countries at the moment? Right. So in the U.S., um there's, there are hardly any communities that are requiring masking anywhere, either indoors or outdoors. Um, masks are not required on airplanes anymore. Um, some municipalities uh, will, will require masks on public transportation, but a lot of cities have listed all indoor and um, public space mask mandates. Um, the United States overall uh, had seen a fair degree of improvement in their um, COVID status. However, they just um, came out of Thanksgiving holiday. And there's some counties in the U.S., in particular uh, L.A. County, where cases have doubled um, in the course of one to two weeks. Uh, They're really seeing a spike. This hasn't translated to an an increase in deaths. But of course, we know that deaths are uh, lagging indicators. So we'll have to see, you know, what the situation ends up being as we go further into the winter months. There are countries in Europe where, um, for the most part, mask mandates are lifted. But in Germany, for example, they do require masks on public transportation still. In Asia, it's a little bit uh, uh, more of a a mixed picture. In Taiwan, for example, they only just recently, a few days ago, December 1st, lifted the mask mandate for outdoors. Of course, they still require uh, masks. In indoor public spaces, um, and same with China. China's you know in mm. the headlines a lot because sure. of their zero COVID uh, policy. They require masking in all public spaces, um, indoors and outdoors. In Japan, um, I've noticed most people are wearing masks everywhere. Um, but in terms of the mandate, uh, you're not required to wear a mask outdoors if you are able to keep. A distance, and right. same with indoors. If you're mm. able to keep a distance, you don't have to wear a mask. But mm. I've noticed almost everyone's wearing a mask everywhere. Uh, but Dr. Tan, finally. The reason why, I guess, uh, the city of Tejan and Chungcheong province, uh, they are calling for this is because, I guess, the people, the public are growing frustrated with uh, the mask mandate. When would be a good time to lift the mandate in South Korea, do you think? What requirements are there, do you think? Well, you know, back... On June 17th of this year, we laid out very clear criteria for when we should lift the indoor mask mandate. We um, set a goal of daily COVID deaths of between 10 to 20 on average at the most uh, and a fatality rate of 0.05 to 0.1 percent excess deaths um, for uh, this is measured on a monthly basis should be within 5% of expected. Um, There should be no new variant on the horizon. The risk level should be low in the country, and um, we wanted a a low risk level for for at least four weeks. And those were the criteria. When they were announced, I thought they were very reasonable criteria, uh, criteria to keep everybody safe. You know, I do want to raise an important point. South Korea saw the the second death 
in the last week of a child uh, under the age of 10. Um, mm. We've and that that brings the total number of pediatric deaths uh, to 36. Uh, it, 36 children have died. A busload of children have died due to COVID. The uh, primary vaccination rate among children is exceedingly low. It's less than 2%. So you can imagine if everybody takes their masks off indoors, that leaves a lot of children, especially at risk mm. because um, they haven't been vaccinated. And so I agree with uh, Professor Zhang. We, we could really be setting up our vulnerable populations up for a very, very severe winter and just look at what's happening in North America. P, uh, ERs, emergency rooms, especially pediatric emergency right. rooms, hmm. are on overflow. We don't want the same thing to happen in our country. Sure. We'll see uh, if uh, how the health authorities uh, respond to the calls uh, from these municipalities. Uh, Dr. Tan, we'll leave it there. We've been speaking to Dr. Alice Tan from Ms. Medi Women's Hospital. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 26.16 points, or 1.08% on Tuesday, closing the day at 2,393.16. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 13.88 points, or 1.89%, to close at 719.44. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 26.21 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,318.81. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on to Korea Trending, our daily segment looking at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have with us Diane Yu to bring us those stories. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jango. It's good to see you. All right, we are heading straight into our first story today. Mm -hmm. What do you have for us first? Bookstores in Seoul's subway station with 37 years of history, which were places for citizens to get cultural insights and knowledge, are closing down. The contract period for the bookstores is until December 9th, this coming Friday, and Seoul Metro has decided not to extend the contract with the store's operator, Hanuri Bookstore. So from this weekend, Seoul Lights won't be able to buy books on their way to work or home. Usually when a store closes in a subway station, Seoul Metro picks another business to come in as a successor after deliberation. However, according to the transport company on Monday, it plans to leave the spaces empty. Right, so Seoul Metro has the final say on these stores, essentially. Right. What was the reason behind their decision not to renew the contract? The main reason for their decision was to secure passenger flow and improve congestion by removing facilities that are in way of people's paths. Seoul Metro said this measure was implemented amid growing concerns in the wake of the Itaewon crowd crush back in October and the heavy rush hour passenger traffic during commutes. Right, I see. So this is part of the fallout from the Itaewon tragedy. Right. Uh, How many bookstores are there currently in operation at Seoul's subway stations? It started with about 100 locations back in 1986, but seven stations can only be found as of today at Gongdeok, Jongno, Samga, Yaksu, Yeonsinne, Samgakji, Taereng, and Wangsinne station. And according to Hanuri, the number of monthly users at the aforementioned seven bookstores was between 5,000 to 
and 6,000. So it seems like both the owner and its customers would find the news heartbreaking. Mm. Hanuri CEO Om Charo said he was sorry that he had to shut down the stores and added that, quote unquote, it was a business that could not make a profit, but there was pride in running a cultural space and subway stations. Right, so these stores were struggling financially, it seems then, but still, I'm sure uh, they were a valuable haven amid the uh, rush hour madness Mm -hmm. for some, and there is always sadness when a long-standing institution like this comes to a close. Okay, so that was our first trending story. Let's move on to our next one, Diane. So as schemes of financial fraud using telecommunications evolve to become even more difficult to catch, the economic damages from the fraudulent acts are approaching 800 billion won a year. According to the Korea Research Institute of Finance in late November, about 30,000 voice phishing scams were caught each year since the first case occurred in 2016. And the amount of damage last year alone was about 770 billion won, which is around 590 million dollars. So phishing is no longer an individual problem, but rather a problem for our society as a whole. Indeed. And like you mentioned earlier, the bigger problem is that schemes are getting smarter and craftier so that they are are able to avoid the authorities. Right. Up to now, voice phishing scams often included phone calls where criminals impersonated an authoritative person such as a bank employee or a prosecutor and requested personal information such as bank account numbers and PIN codes. However, unlike those typical scam calls, these days scammers make you download an app first. And as the app runs, even if you try to call the police, you are rerouted to a group of scammers instead and your personal information is leaked. Victims powerlessly fall prey to the scam because the malware app looks just like a real app to them. And after being installed, the app can disappear from their smartphone screen so that it can't be deleted. Wow. So these apps can be hidden from view, essentially. So you might not even know if it's on your phone. Exactly. So then how should we protect ourselves from these scammers? Did the police give any advice? Well, the head of the Unlab Security Emergency Response Center, Kim Gonu, says that the safest way is to download apps through a trusted app store. And the police and security companies have urged never to click addresses of unknown sources received through text messages or social media to prevent damage. And in addition, if you have already clicked on the address or if you suspect that it might be a phishing scam, you must report it with another phone or with help from people around you. Yes, it's perhaps often easier for younger people like you and me to Mm -hmm. avoid them as we know what to look out for. But for less tech savvy Mm -hmm. people, they can be a lot more vulnerable. Uh, I feel some other solutions perhaps need to be found soon as well, but it's hard to keep up with the criminals as part of the problem. Okay, let's move on to our last story now. What do you have for us? So if you are a fan of the South Korean Academy Award winning director Pong Juno like me, Bring out your calendar and be ready to mark the date because his very next movie's release date has been announced. According to Warner Brothers on Monday, Bong's new movie, Mickey 17, will hit theaters around the world on March 29, 2024. And along with the release date, the company also posted a 30-second teaser trailer showing Robert Pattinson laying inside a futuristic high-tech machine within what appears to be a a laboratory. And as the camera zooms in, the actor opens his eyes and looks directly at the viewers. Right, so Mickey 17 will be his uh, first movie since 2019's Parasite. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure fans around the world, like you, will be waiting eagerly. Yes. Uh, also, uh, what is evident from the teaser is that the upcoming film is different from Parasite and that it's 
based on a science fiction story. That's right. Mickey Seventeen is based on Edward Ashton's science fiction novel Mickey Seven, which debuted on February fifteenth this year and tells the story of a cloned human pioneering an unknown planet. The publisher of the book, Saint Martin Press, describes the book as a high concept cerebral thriller in the vein of The Martian. And according to the book's official synopsis, the story is about Mickey Seven, a disposable employee on a human expedition sent to colonize the ice world Niflheim, who refuses to let his replacement clone take his place. However, according to the U.S. entertainment magazine Variety, plot details for the movie have not been finalized, and it's unclear how closely Bong plans to stick to the book. Right. We actually first reported about this movie back in August uh, when filming started in the UK. But at the time, it had just that working title, Mickey Seven, and not much was known about it. Uh, as we are still over a year away from its release, I'm guessing that they are still filming. Right, the film is currently in production, and there is a star-studded cast along with Patterson. It also stars Minari's Stephen Yun. I want to dance with somebody, actress Naomi Aki, Tony Collette from Hereditary, and Mark Ruffalo, the Hulk.、Mm. So all eyes are on Bong's new film as it will hit the box office. Just in time to start 2025's awards season race, Bong has already made history with his previous movie *Parasite* being the first ever non-English language to take home the Academy Award for Best Picture. So let's see if he has another chance of winning. Indeed, we'll wrap it up there, Diane. Thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Our guest today for Touch Basin's Hole is a renowned designer who was selected earlier this year as the artistic director for this year's Craft Trend Fair, an annual event that celebrates Korean craftsmanship, both traditional and contemporary. He is known for elegantly bringing together those two worlds of the traditional and contemporary, as seen in his studio, a traditional hanok that houses a modern working space as well. His name is. Teo Yang, and he joins us here in the studio. Mr. Yang, hello, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's so、yes. nice to be here. Yes, let's dive straight in. You are a renowned interior and space designer, but how did you start?、Uh, what led you to become a designer?、Um, becoming a designer was a very natural decision for me.、Mm. Uh, from an early age, I always wanted to become an artist or a designer. I love to draw and create things using my hands, so I felt very comfortable expressing my thoughts through art.、Uh, I believe re- realizing what you want to do in life in a very early stage is a huge benefit,、mm. and I do feel lucky. And I also love to study and read about history. And I think the best part about this job is that you get to learn all the beautiful things and meaningful meaningful things that the human race has created. Sure. So even from a young age, you were drawn to art. You were drawn to、uh, you had an eye for the aesthetics.、Yes. Was it perhaps、uh, modern designs that you liked as you were growing up, or was it traditional, or was it both for you?、Oh, I think it was both. I had bo- interest in both sides, but、uh, growing up and taking this occupation.、Um, I had more interest toward traditional. Uh, aspects and traditional aesthetic, and I'm very keen on how to translate them to a modern language. Sure, and I understand 
originally when you were younger, you were perhaps had less interest in Korean uh, traditional styles. But as you uh, began to study, as you met other masters, you began to appreciate Korean uh, traditional designs as well. Yes, definitely. Uh, I think we actually don't get a, a proper chance to learn about our tradition and aesthetic when mm. we are young. Uh, so I had to uh, find my own ways to discover the beauty of it. Mm, okay. Uh, so you really have an amazing mix of modern uh, beauty and traditional design in your works. For our listeners, we'll be putting up some pictures on our social media, such as uh, mm. Instagram, KBS underscore Career 24. But uh, I also recommend our listeners to look through uh, Mr. Yang's website, uh, taoyangstudio.com, because some of your projects are really incredible. I got lost uh, in them looking through all the pictures from Hanok conversions uh, to museums such as the uh, Gyeongju National Museum, the Kukche Gallery. Mm -hmm. And I even saw that there was uh, an expressway rest stop bathroom yes. that you redesigned, probably the most beautiful uh, rest uh, expressway bathroom in the world. <laughs> How do you take on such projects? How do you begin to take on such projects? Where do you get your inspiration from? Um, I believe the city of Seoul really inspires me. I just love observing the city and seeing how it's changing and developing. And Seoul is a beautiful city with close to 10 million in residents. Mm. And with this much of a dense population, there follows the celebration of innovation and development and competition. And, and under this condition... And under this environment, um, you really have to be cautious on, on what you create mm. and make sure that you do not follow the trends and you really make uh, decisions that will benefit the future. So uh, I think this thinking process of not only going forward, but really uh, knowing when to stop and take one step aside from the from the from the race and really try to utilize the city's heritage and city's tradition and really trying to understand the history i think that process really inspires me a lot sure you say cautious but i would more say perhaps careful or mm -hmm. uh, considered uh, you have a very considered touch i think in everything you do uh, what project over the years, have you perhaps been most proud of uh, that has uh, best showcased your style of your considered uh, mix of tradition and old and your philosophy? Mm. Um, all of my uh, projects that I have created within 10 years uh, are guided by my manifesto, which is translating tradition and local heritage into a modern world. Um, so every projects are very cost, uh, very uh, precious to me, and uh, I especially love doing a public project that I could share with just everyone. And the things that you have mentioned, the museum projects and uh, and the uh, highway rest stop restroom was such a fun project. <laughs> really understanding how people understand the country, the city, and the neighborhood, and really shaping how we view um, those things. I think I learned the importance of design through uh, these projects. Again, your 
choice of word manifesto, I think, again, is interesting. It shows mm. that you have a very uh, clear philosophy about what you want to do. Uh, you received international recognition for your work as well. In 2021, you were featured in the uh, Fidon Press by Design, the world's best contemporary interior designers, uh, a showcase of the world's uh, most innovative interior designers. Mm. What do you make of such recognition, especially uh, such international recognition? Why do you uh, think... Uh, you have succeeded the way you have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the manifesto actually helped me to get to where I am at the moment. Mm. If I didn't have the right goal, if I didn't have the right meanings to support the community and really trying to uh, be part of the history, uh, I don't think I wouldn't have any of these recognitions from this uh, huge international medias. Uh, when the Python press, when they actually emailed me, I thought it was an advertisement, so I didn't even <laughs> reply to them. Uh, but and, but of course, I was very overwhelmed and very happy when I found out that I was being part of this 100 list because I, I grew up reading this book and I studied while I was looking at this book and I was always wondering what uh, these people had to do in order to be in this book. Um, so I was very happy and I am uh, just honored that maybe I am doing things right mm. and maybe uh, maybe the things that I've created aren't that bad <laughs> at the moment, <laughs> yes. Well, clearly uh, what you're doing is right, it seems. Uh, as we mentioned at the start, uh, another reason we invited you uh, in this week is because early this year you were selected as the artistic director for this year's Craft Trend Fair that will be held at the COEX uh, Exhibition Centre from December 8th to 12th. Uh, Tell us more about uh, this event, the Craft Trend Fair. What was your reaction as well when you were asked to uh, be the artistic director? Um, uh, Craft Trend Fair... Craft Trend Fair is one of the biggest craft fairs in Korea, Mm. uh, which is held annually, like what you said... And is hosted by the Ministry of Culture, Sports and Tourism, and Korea Craft and Design Foundation. Um, you do have to have a lot of obligation in order to feature a show like this, to open up a great show like this. Because it's not about a beautiful space that you're creating, but you really have to create a platform where all these different sectors of craft come together and really create a narrative so people can uh, relate to it Mm. so um, very honored but at the same time there's a lot of pressure and since um, I am uh, the 17th director of this fair and there will be many more so I would love to create a great impression in the history of this fair Sure. I guess there's a challenge of you want to uh, bring your own style to the event, but also you've got to respect the organisers and the exhibitors there who are showcasing uh, what they have. Uh, This year's theme is uh, Today's Questions, Craft Answers. Can you tell us a bit about that phrase as well? Yes. um, There are a lot of issues that we are going through at a current state. Um, Just name few. Uh, there's this uh, borderline of tradition and digitalization and also with sustainability and environmental issues. And uh, our uh, societies and cultures are being very unified by our social platforms such as Instagram and other uh, 
social medias. And crafts, I do believe they have solutions to all of these. Um, the crafts were naturally driven by uh, the geological features and also by the lifestyle of locals. And all the materials from the crafts are from nature. And it's crafted in, in a using methods that really respects uh, both human uh, and the nature. So we really wanted to highlight um, what crafts could do at, at this state to help our current situation. So uh, to rephrase that again, uh, there are several roles that crafts play in our society, and that uh, is for first inheriting tradition, and second is conveying human sensibilities uh, via hand handicrafts, and third is contributing to promote the use of sustainable materials and methods. And I believe these are the attributes that provide answer to the problems of our time. Um, if I uh, repeat that again, maybe uh, the standard of modern lifestyle, loss of humanity by digitalization, and also destruction of nature and environment. And we all know that craft is very beautiful and it is important for us to keep. Uh, but I really wanted to create a narrative and create an awareness that uh, we need to talk about the necessities of craft. Like, why do we need craft at this moment? And what can crafts do to solve those issues? So we are going to be uh, discussing uh, those three different topics throughout uh, this year's craft fair. Wow, some very important topics. Uh, it sounds like we'll be talking about. It's not just about the beauty of the crafts; it's about mm -hmm. uh, uh, function and how they can help give back as well. I guess. Uh, we talked a little bit about how, you know, you have a lot of responsibilities for putting on this fair. The Coex Centre, it's, it's a vast space. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the space they've given you is vast as well. But at the same time, it's very bare. Uh, but it will be teeming with exhibitors and visitors. How do you go about tackling this sort of space for you? I imagine there must be quite a few unique challenges. Yes, uh, I think the narrative is the most important thing. Narrative becomes the whole guideline, it becomes the goal, and you just need to pick the right words and you just need to uh, pick the right space to rest in order to create that story using different uh, design aesthetics. And, uh, and when everything comes together and if it tells the narrative, I think you put on a successful show. So I always try to tackle projects like these as a form of writing a poetry, like everything becomes such important uh, words and everything becomes a, such an important uh, thing. So just make sure that you um, want, you have a very strong goal and a very strong theme and just make sure all everything is focused on that. Well, I hope it goes well. I cannot wait to see how uh, you transform the place. I'm sure it'll be uh, very special. Okay, we're going to have to wrap it up there. We've been speaking to designer Teo Yang from for Touch Base in Seoul. Thank you once again for coming in today and uh, sharing your time with us. Thank you so much for the invitation. I hope to see you at the trend fair. Scott Kelly, former NASA astronaut, 
and you're listening to Korea 24. It's time for our closing segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, joins us in the studio. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. Okay. So what do you have for us first? Well, according to Kim Rand's article in the Lifestyle section of the Korea Times, a centre where visitors can experience Hallyu products has opened in Jakarta, Indonesia. The centre is named Korea's 360 and opened inside Lotte Shopping Avenue Mall on Saturday. Okay, so the lot there, Shopping Avenue Mall in Jakarta. Yes. Uh, and this place, a Korea 360, it's a place to promote goods related to Korean culture, you're saying? Exactly. And the place looks big. The article mentions that there is a space for performances or events, a cooking studio, and an exhibition section for products. The products aren't just related to K-pop, by the way. They include items from other industries like cosmetics, healthcare, food, and tourism. The store held several events to celebrate its opening, these included Korean animation screenings, a talk show on Korea's tourist attractions, and consulting sessions for Indonesian companies interested in important products and content. Right, so it sounds like the centre will also try to play a role in helping create uh, business relationships between the two countries as well. Yes, and it looks like the Korean government plans to expand in the future and use the Korea 360 brand when opening centres in other countries. So it could create more business partnerships as well as promote Korean culture abroad. Yes, Korean culture is very popular in Indonesia as well, of course. So I expect this uh, centre to be quite busy. Uh, let's uh, move on to our second story. What do you have for us? There is a unique exhibition on traditional Korean food culture in Jeonju, North Jeolla province. Kim hae yeons article in the Life and Style section of the Korea Herald explains what it's about. The exhibition is called Eat and Inherit, Korean Traditional Food Culture, and it opens tomorrow at Jeonju's National Intangible Heritage Centre. Okay, so it sounds like it'll be useful for those who are interested in Korea's more ancient history. Right. It takes a look at kimchi, jang, which is fermented paste, makgeolli, which is a type of rice wine, and dok, which is rice cake. Interesting fact, the making of each of these items is on the Korea's National Intangible Cultural Heritage list. Kimchi and jang making were designated in 2017 and 2019, and makgeolli and dok making were added to the list in 2021. Okay, so tell us some more about the exhibition as well. Well, it's separated into four parts. Korean food culture in records, spending time together, sharing food, sharing hearts, and inherit together. The article mentions that the first part introduces the history of Korean culture through old books, such as Sangha Yorok, which is the essential notes for a household in English, and Umshik Dimibang, recipes for tasting food. The essential notes for a household book was written in 1459, so the recipes have been passed down for generations. Wow, OK. So uh, how long will this exhibition run? Until May 14th, 2023. Admission is free, but the exhibition is closed on Mondays. For our listeners who can't visit the centre, there is actually a virtual reality exhibition tour that does start later, though, in January and can be seen on the National Intangible Heritage Centre's website and YouTube channel. Yes, and for more information, check out tomorrow's Career Herald. We'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow, so we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.
CBS World Radio.